So now that the uh, plaintiffs have rested their case, the defense has made their uh, motions for directed verdict, and the, uh, assuming the judge hasn't granted those motions, uh, you move into the defense's case. And um, essentially, uh, it's doing the same thing uh, as the plaintiffs, except that the, the defendant has got the opposite objective. While the plaintiff is trying to prove their case, the defendant is trying to disprove the plaintiff's case. Um, but some of the things that, that I think are important is, um, you know, they have the same time to put up their witnesses and, um, and cross-examination, I guess we should talk about defense directs and cross-examination, but we think, uh, you know, at this firm, we think a lot about how we're going to cross-examine the defendant's witnesses, especially their expert witnesses, and any corporate representatives that they're going to put up in their in their case. You want to, Jeff, kind of talk us through some of the defense witnesses and and how that gets approached. All right. Well, the f the first thing that happens, in, well, not the first thing, but one of the things that's going to happen in the defense case is the defense the defense gets to put the defendant up and ask them whatever they want. So going back to my example, when the plaintiff calls the defendant in their case, it's limited to cross examination. Um, the best way to think about it is in a, in a medical malpractice case, let's say a doctor commits malpractice. In the plaintiff's case, the plaintiff is going to call the doctor and cross-examine the doctor, and you're going to limit it really to what you think you need in order to prove your case. You're going to go through the procedure itself and how the doctor screws up. And the doctor at that point has to sit down. Um, but now that it's in the defendant's case, the defendant's lawyers get to put the doctor up and go through, and it's the jury's a lot of times just kind of confused by this but at that point in time you know the doctor will be put back up on the stand and the defense lawyers will back up and say now doctor tell us a little bit about yourself where you went to medical school you know they'll try to humanize the doctor um, and and it'll be a lot more in depth and that's because in the defendant's case the defendant now can do the same stuff that the plaintiff could which is call witnesses ask them um, non-leading questions and lay out their case um, so, and then the defendant puts up their experts just like the plaintiff did or the, or the defendant puts up whatever uh, fact witnesses the, the defendant has. And then the plaintiff can cross-examine uh, those witnesses. So, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about, in particular, the defendant's expert witnesses, you know, putting together strong crosses because we sort of have this mentality that if we can fight kind of to a draw in our case, um, that we, we feel like a lot of times we can win in their case if we can really zing their experts. And, and the reason I think that's true is that, and I've heard Gerard say this over and over again, they're, they're sort of, if you're suing a big corporation, they kind of think that, well, the plaintiffs did a great job, but, you know, it's kind of, these defense lawyers are, and this big corporation is going to bring in just this blitzkrieg of badasses who are going to come in and just roll right over the plaintiff's case. If that doesn't happen, the jury starts to go, well, wait a minute, I've already heard all this stuff already. And they have this expectation that the defense lawyers are going to do this jam up job and that it's going to be an incredibly powerful case. And if it's not, they quit listening. And I think I see that happen a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it, I mean, I had jurors say exactly that to me after a, a Ford trial, which was, you know, they just expected Ford to come in there and. Uh, you know, put on this, you know, all this evidence of why the plaintiffs couldn't possibly be right, and they just didn't do that. Um, and so it, it becomes, uh, a, a, you know, it's a, it's a tough point for the defense, not that I feel sorry for them at all. Um, you don't. <laughs> right, I don't. <laughs> um, but, um, but 
you know, that, that is one of the expectations of jurors. And, and you know, and Yvonne and I have talked about this before. Um, you know, when a jury walks into a trial, uh, they don't know what to expect. I mean, so when, when lawyers sit there and, you know, talk to each other about, well, should we do this or should we do that? What's the jury going to think if we, do, if we do it this way? I mean, generally, in my experience, the jury, this is the first trial they've seen. And so whatever way you do it is the way they expect you yeah. should do it. Um, but um, well, the the defense has a tough time in their part of the case in a really complex case when the plaintiff has already put up a bunch of experts and explained the background. Let's go back to that tire case that Yvonne was talking about. If the plaintiff has put up experts and explained how how a tire was made and gone through the tire assembly process, um, the defense lawyers really should not put up a witness to say the exact same thing because the jury's like, we've already heard all this. Why aren't you replowing that ground? But invariably they do. And I think they feel like they have to because they want to they want to build credibility. It goes back to this whole credibility thing. So they want their expert to explain the whole tire building process too, even though who care? I mean, a lot of times the stuff that their experts will go re-explain to the jury isn't really key. So that's a... I think a mistake that a lot of defense lawyers make, and that is having their experts say the same thing. And sometimes they'll do it with multiple experts and establish something that really isn't in dispute and that um, is sort of a waste of time because juries are, they're impatient. I mean, right. hell, they want to get home. And, and if it looks like the defense is just going through the motions of proving something, I mean, juries start to get really angry. Uh, at that point, and that, that is something that uh, defendants need to think of. I mean, plaintiffs think about it too, but we do have the benefit of going first. Um, so, you know, if we've already said something in our case, and then the defense basically says what we just said they were going to say, the jury gets doesn't get impressed uh, at all. Um, one thing I did want to talk about that we try to do in our cases is, is that, um, you know, so in the defense case, they're going to do everything they can to disprove your case. They're also going to do everything they can to show, you know, all the warts of your client, uh, all the problems that your client has. And so um, you very rarely want uh, that to be first heard in the defense's case, the problems with your client. Um, so we've always tried to make it, uh, you know, I have yet to have the perfect case come in. I'm still waiting. Um, and I would love to have the perfect case uh, if anybody's out there listening. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, um, you, you know, all, every case has warts. And when you do, um, part of going back to this credibility is you have to um, show the jury, um, yes, we're not perfect. Our client has problems. And here's the problems. And this is why uh, it doesn't affect how this case should come out. But, you know, we're human beings. And human beings have flaws. Um, and so... I didn't mean for this just to be me talking here, but, uh, um, you know, I, I did want to talk about how, you know, you can sort of uh, undercut the defense's case by showing all the weaknesses of your case in your case in chief, and that's an important thing for plaintiffs to do. Um, yeah, just to follow up on that point, if the, if the defense's entire defense is based on something that you already admitted, which I think is what's kind of one of Steve's points, if there's some weakness in your case as the plaintiff's lawyer and you go ahead and admit it in your case and deal with it in your case and then the defense lawyer gets up and their whole case is based on trying to establish something that you've already dealt with, you've already admitted and addressed, it's kind of like the jury is sitting there going, well, I, I thought you'd have more than that because 
a lot of those points the defense lawyers are making, they're making on cross in the plaintiff's case. And so the jury's ready for something new. They're, they're doing the whole, you know, I got that. Do you have anything else for us? <laughs> and right. if you don't, shut up and right. sit down. But um, anyway, Rebecca, follow up on that point. The, well, a good example would be the, the case y'all are talking about where um, the little girl died um, after she inadvertently caused the vehicle to go into reverse. And so um, after the focus group, you know, the, the main thing that we learned was to accept This, this is the break shift interlock Yeah, the break shift interlock case. To accept responsibility. That the parents need to, or the mother and the boyfriend needed to accept responsibility. Some responsibility for leaving her in the vehicle. Even though we all thought, and you know, that we all do it. And, and we didn't think before the focus group that that was something we had to do. Um, so by accepting responsibility during our case in chief and having the mom say, course I would not do that again of course you know that's not ideal when they came in and that was their their entire defense was it was the mom's fault it just fell flat you know because they the, the jury had already heard the mom accept responsibility I think the case would have probably turned out differently had we not taken that away from them during our case in chief yeah, um, and I, I will say that you know that's a lesson that we've we learned uh, in that case and have used in all of our cases since then. Um, it's it actually can be very powerful for your client when you have them accept some responsibility. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I was just going to say I feel like Jeff Jeff has done um, a really good job of that in in his openings, preparing the jury for what they're going to hear as some of the defenses, and then when the defense does it. He comes back, you know, in closing or whatever, and is like, "I told you, I told you they're going to do it." And looks even smart. He looks even smarter, way much smarter than he is. <laughs> right, right. That's from the Latin pretty. smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we we've already talked about uh, all the 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 basic types of witnesses and the basic types of evidence. The defendants essentially will go through and have their own fact witnesses. Uh, well, hopefully not that many fact witnesses because generally the plaintiff will want to put those up in, in uh, the plaintiff's case in chief. Yeah, and I, just just to weigh in there, it, you don't want, if there's some witness that's going to blow your case out of the water, right. yeah. that you know you spend three days laying out your case and there's some just smoking gun witness who's going to kill you, you can't just ignore that witness. Right. So you never want to be, as the plaintiff's lawyer, you never want to be in a situation where you don't deal with that in your case in chief. So that goes back to what Steve's saying. Uh, if there's some fact witness who's great, you know, sometimes you just, if he's, he's great for the defense, you might just call him in your case in chief and what we call, you know, sandwich him. <laughs> you, right. put, you put one good witness, a terrible witness, and then a good witness, and then he's sandwiched between two good witnesses and he just his testimony is less important and less powerful. If you ignore that witness and let the defense bring him in, you know, with trumpets blaring and the disco lights coming down and all that, yeah. and then the guy kills you, you're making a huge mistake. So that's, that kind of goes to Steve's point. There shouldn't be some huge fact witness in the defense case that, that you haven't already addressed in the plaintiff's case. Yeah, and, and you know, when you have those witnesses that you want to sandwich, and I don't want to give too much away, but usually I like to try and put them in that. Strategy, yeah. I, I, I want to try and put them in that sweet spot, which is usually like the second or third witness after lunch. Right, you know? <laughs> right, right. Like where everybody's just dozing off just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we dim the lights, we put on Barry White, and then, we, and then we bring in the defense's best witness, and everybody's nodding off. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, Despite his references to Barry White and disco in the past like minute, Jeff's not that old. <laughs> right. But he's still old. <laughs> You're right. Normal, normally we play Footloose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, one thing we haven't talked about when we, when we talk about expert witnesses and, uh, um, is the, this concept of challenging the expert before you get to uh, trial, uh, commonly referred to as uh, Daubert or Daubert. Uh, Rebecca, you want to talk about uh, challenging expert witnesses? Sure. And the main point I want to make is it's pronounced Daubert, not <laughs> <Right>. Daubert. <laughs> um, but huge point of contention among lawyers. But um, I thought about that, Steve, when, when we were talking about um, experts. But that is probably the biggest part of the pretrial motions um, that Yvonne mentioned. It, you know, the Supreme Court has said, the Supreme Court of the United States has said, you can't just offer an expert um, and just say he's an expert because he's an expert. And um, so before trial, you have to, well, first, when you're finding an expert, you've got to make sure they're qualified. Um, when you find the expert and when they start to give their opinions, you've got to make sure their opinions are solid and that they um, are based on scientific principles and good methodology and all the things that the court's going to require. And then, um, and then there'll be Daubert motions, which um, both sides can file on both sides experts. And then there's a lot of argument and there's a lot of briefing and a lot of time spent on that. By the time you get to trial, you, um, you know, all, all your experts will presumably have met the Daubert standard. Is that, is that what you're asking me to Yeah, no, on? absolutely. <laughs> and I guess we should say that Daubert is, uh, is the name of a Supreme Court case where it basically lays out uh, this principle and, and the qualifications that they have to meet, Daubert versus Merrill Dow, I think, or something. Right, right. right. Um, I mean, the term junk a, science. Kim Tire, which was uh, was a, uh, involved one of our experts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It did, but Who he is actually a great expert. He was a great expert, but... <laughs> But there's actually three Supreme Court cases that essentially lay out that the experts got to be qualified, got to have a, a methodology, and, and can't just say, well, I'm an expert because I'm an expert. Right. And the term junk science, I, I don't think it came from the Daubert opinion, but that's essentially what they, the Supreme Court said is we don't want junk science coming into our courtrooms um, because that's not, that's not the standard. And um, so it's, it's a difficult hurdle. But again, it's it applies to both sides, and frankly, it's it's a good thing. Except when it's not. Except right. when it's not. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, I mean, basically, uh, that's what the defendant is going to do in their case, uh, and that's how they're going to put their case up. And then the defendant is going to rest, and then the plaintiffs will get uh, a chance if they've got a witness or some evidence to rebut or do rebuttal. Uh, of the defendant's case. And uh, Jed, do you want to cover rebuttal while you're checking your emails there? <laughs> no, um, absolutely. Look, look at him. Look right at his teleprompter. <laughs> yeah. Rebuttal. Yeah, Jed, didn't you know this was coming from the script that uh, Steve gave you? I thought, thought I wasn't going to get called on in class till a little bit later. So, uh, so rebuttal is the opportunity. It is not mandatory, but after each side has gone, you know, we've talked about the plaintiffs putting in their case, getting into the prima facie element. You've met your case, and you've gotten past the legal hurdles where a judge says, "Okay, you presented enough. He or she has presented enough evidence to, uh, you know, to move forward." The defense then had their opportunity to put on all their best evidence for why the jury should find for them in the case. And rather than ending it at that point, because the plaintiff has the you know, ultimate burden to prove the case and because there may have been things that came up during the 
defendant's portion of the case that weren't addressed by the plaintiff, um, there's an opportunity for what they call rebuttal. And it's exactly what you said, what it is, is it's a limited portion where the truck, where the plaintiff can reopen their case and present evidence to rebut facts or evidence that came out during the defendant's portion. Um, it, I think, you know, again, I, there's no magic strategy here. I think most lawyers believe that, you know, if you do have the opportunity to do rebuttal, it's usually a good thing because like in any argument, you want the final word. Um, so it's just an, it's another opportunity to get, you know, some facts, you know, represented to the jury, but you have to be very careful for two reasons. One is a judge is not going to allow you just to rehash everything that has already come up for the, you know, sole purposes of, of, you know, trying to do another synopsis. The judge will get very annoyed with you and make you truly stick to rebuttal points. And secondly, by this point, if it's any trial that's had any length, the jury, they haven't heard closing arguments or closing statements yet, but most people will say the jury really kind of knows where they're going at this point. So you've got to be very careful to not annoy the jury with rehashing or representing things that, you know, hopefully the defendants in our case annoyed them by, you know, going too long and redoing things that were, you know, not necessary for them to make their decision. You don't want to fall into that same trap and get the, you know, the pox in your house for doing the same thing that others may have done. So that's rebuttal. It is an opportunity. You can present witnesses, you can present evidence, you know, all that stuff can go in, but it's just a, a little mini part of the trial to, to rebut. Most of the times it's one, maybe two witnesses at most. Yeah, and, and what, as we say around our firm uh, with rebuttal, with respect to rebuttal, you should always do rebuttal and you should almost never do rebuttal. Right, <laughs> exactly. Just, just to sum that up for everyone. Right, well, we were, Steve, who were we talking to about, a lot of it comes down to timing too. You know, we talked, yeah. who did we just talk to about the, the, the Friday afternoon? The Saturday. And, oh, that was uh, John Romano. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of it comes down to timing. You don't want the jury to case get the case at the end of the day on the Friday when they might be in a right. rush to get home. They don't want to have to come back the next week if they haven't decided the case. They don't want to, have to, want to have to come back on a Saturday, which is sometimes something that the judge will threaten to do or in John's case, right. he did. Which, it, which reminds me of a case that, Re, that Rebecca and I tried where the jury got the case on Friday night, I mean, late Friday night, and we lost. And the jury, the, she interviewed one of the jurors and he said, well, I was with you, but I just got hungry. <laughs> he said the judge wouldn't allow us to order any pizzas, so I just went with the other side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kills you. And I think yeah. one of the things that you, that I didn't understand really until I think somebody else at our firm explained it to me is that it's a lot faster to agree on a defense verdict because then you don't have to agree to a damages amount or right. allocating different percentages of fault. You can just say no and then be done. So yeah. if it comes down to a time crunch or if you're getting hangry, yeah. Jeff, yeah. Right. You, Jeff. No, I, I felt for that guy. Yeah, exactly. I'm getting angry right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. Well, that's, that's the other thing we should mention, the irony of that. I'm starving right now, but during an actual trial, we don't eat. Yeah, well, because you're so hopped up on adrenaline that you, yeah. you know, that's all you're, uh, all you're thinking about. Um, okay, so uh, after uh, uh, the rebuttal, I mean, basically you're ready for closing uh, argument, um, but before you get to closing argument, you have to deal with what's called jury charges. So, well, wait a minute, no, there's one more opportunity okay. for the defense right. to throw your case out. 
Right. That's right. They can make so a, I just want to another motion. That point that's right. That, that here we go. We've had all these opportunities for the defense to throw the case out. They get to do it yet again, and yes. they do. After the close of their case, they can they can ask the judge to throw the plaintiff's case out. Yes. Anyway, yes. sorry. No, that's right. That that is absolutely right. Um, and they will, you know, in order to perfect their record for appeal, they'll make their motion every every time. Um, so then we move on to jury charges. What are jury charges, Yvonne? So those are the instructions that the judge gives to the jury um, about the law and the case and how they should apply the law. Basically the last thing that happens with the jury in the room and then they go off to deliberations. So what a jury doesn't see um, is that behind the scenes the parties have submitted proposed charges. And this is, by the way, the most scintillating, riveting, yeah. like, <laughs> just fascinating part of a, a trial called the charge conference. Yes. yes. Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it's it's one of those things that in all the different other things you're doing to prepare for trial, it's it's sometimes I think I think it's one of those things that always is more work than we think of. And then we suddenly realize in Georgia, at least you submit the kind of the charges that you want ahead of time. And there are pattern charges on certain issues that have been approved. Uh, just, just to be, I, mean, I want to make sure that people listening understand this. It, it's a charge is the judge is going to read to the jury a statement or principle of law that applies to the case. So if the plaintiff has a burden of proof, the judge is going to tell the jury what that burden of proof is. And if the plaintiff is trying to prove, like for example, that a, that a car is defective, the test for how you determine whether something is or isn't defective is going to be read to the jury. And there's this huge fight about what what is read and what isn't read, and that's why even though it's the most boring, you know, painful part of a trial, it's also probably the most dangerous because if the defense wants to read a principle of law to the jury about, you know, how you how the plan is supposed to meet their burden of proof, and you object to it and you're wrong, the the when it goes up on appeal, that is a pure question of law. When when cases go up on appeal. If it's a question of fact, the appellate court's going to defer to the jury to decide whether the light was red or green. But what the principle of law is that's read to the jury is a question of, of law for the appellate court. So it's just an easy way to screw up. I mean, you've, you know, you've been through a trial for three weeks and the judge doesn't give one jury charge. You know, that, that might be the error in your case that causes you to lose. So even though we all hate it, it's incredibly important. Yeah, and it's also one of those lessons of be careful what you ask for. Right, or, uh, or be careful what you object to. Right. I mean, I, you know, a lot of times if a defense lawyer is arguing like hell and gets all red in the face and starts frothing at the mouth about wanting some jury charge, it'll wake me up and I'll say, well, that must they might actually be right. Right. And one thing we tend to do, I think, as a group during trial is we take the jury charges that we think are good for us, the principles of law that are good for us, and we'll have Bob, you know, put them up on the screen or we'll have just boards made like poster boards with that charge and use them with the witnesses and say them over and over again and and you know repeat them during closing argument um, so that when the jury hears those charges amongst you know an hour's worth of other charges that can again be boring um, they'll remember that principle of law yeah what, one other thing that, that also gets decided during that is what your verdict form is going to look like. Another and, scintillating part. Right, exactly. But in, another important thing because at the end of the day, that's what you're asking the jury to fill out. And so you want to make sure that they understand that and that they know how they want, you know, should fill it out if they 
think that you should prevail or your client should prevail. Right. And the defense lawyers always have a 17-page verdict right. form with subparts that, that require that the jury, you know, check yes, you know, 157 times with subparts in order for the plaintiff to win. And the plaintiff's lawyers generally want one question, we win or do we not? I'm, I'm being facetious, but that's really how it works. And, you know, most judges, and the law actually favors a general verdict form, but in this whole fight about what the verdict form looks like, there's a tendency for a lot of defense lawyers to want to have special interrogatories, which are questions that are asked that the jury has to answer yes to before they can ever allow the plaintiff to win. Too, too, too much detail on the No, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> we'll have some on our website. We have some yeah. for, um, like, uh, um, one of the ones we just talked about. Russ Herman. Russ Herman. Yes. We have his, which is crazy because yes. it's set up like the tobacco. Was it a bunch of special interrogatories? Well, that? sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, because like the, the, the second phase was like setting up what the system was going to look like for smokers in Louisiana, their abatement sort of mm -hmm. assistance trust. And so there was all stuff about the amount and what elements should be in the program. Yeah, yeah what they were asking for in that case was uh, to set up a, a smoking cessation program for cessation, smokers. Um, and so, uh, so basically, they the jury, the verdict form went through all of these different phases of what that was going to look like, hmm. and then how long they were going to fund it for. Because I think uh, the plaintiffs were asking for them to fund it for 25 years. I think the jury ended up funding it for 10 years, um, and so that's how that whole thing got played out. So that's a crazy form, and then we have some simple ones. Yes. So uh, okay, so now all that's done. Uh, evidence is rested. Uh, you've got your jury charges, so you know the rules you're playing by. You've got your verdict form. Now you're ready for closing argument. Jeff, you want to talk about closings? Yeah, most trial lawyers will tell you it's by far and away the most fun part of a trial. And the way that I always explain it is, let's say a case has gone on for three or four years. I internalize hostility. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've had to sit through a zillion depositions where I've listened to what I think is a stupid, frivolous defense. And now I've gone to trial and I've listened to what I think is, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, just a, a, a silly defense. And I'm just annoyed and pissed off, and it's now my opportunity to vent. <laughs> and unlike the opening statement, which is supposed to be limited to the evidence, in the closing argument, you get to do just that. You get to close the case out and you get to argue and you get to explain to the jury why you think your client ought to win. And for the, the plaintiff who has the burden of proof, you get to go first and you get to go last. And some people don't do that, and they're making a huge mistake if they elect not to split their closing because the whole you know, laws of persuasiveness tell us that primacy and recency are the, the way to argue. So you get to go first and you get to go last. That's a very powerful way um, to, to close out your case. And so you're arguing these principles of law. You're saying the judge is going to tell you that the law is this. You're arguing the facts. You're saying we've established with all these fact witnesses that we've met those elements. Um, you get to talk about their experts and that they're all, you know, a bunch of people who shouldn't be believed because they're paid zillions of dollars. And you get to talk about your experts and why they're credible. And then the, the huge powerful point for a plaintiff is you get to talk about things that they're going to ignore because they always ignore stuff. So, for example, in a big case that where someone's badly injured, if the defense is purely we didn't do anything wrong, there's still a huge part of your case where you're talking about how, how, how much the damages are and how bad this person has been injured. The defense typically ignores that. And so, you know, you get to say, well, where's their evidence of, of the fact that, you know, this isn't a horrible injury? So, anyway, it, I don't mean to go off, no, on, but it, it's just, it's fun. Um, and, 
you know, you, you got to have a, a persuasive, compelling argument in order to win the case, and that's when you do it is in closing. Yeah, and it's also that sort of time when you're going <clears> to <throat> bring back that first witness that the jury heard from two weeks ago mm -hmm. that they're not really remembering. You just say, remember this guy and, and what he had to say and why that's so important. Um, and I was just going to say, you mentioned primacy and recency. I mean, essentially, that's a psychological principle that the thing you hear first and more often you're generally more likely to remember. So that's why it's powerful for the plaintiffs to go first and to make sure that the, the way we present our case, you know, cements, you know, why we should prevail. Uh, and I, we've already talked about this in some of our other podcasts, but the, this idea of front-loading the defendant's faults. So like, you know, when you, your first witness that you put up in the case <clears throat> might be the corporate representative of the defendant and you're going to go through all the stuff that defendant knew and then decided not to do anything about. And so that's the first thing the jury hears. Um, <clears throat> and so that's primacy and recency. Um, but um, and, and, and this idea that the plaintiffs get to go first and last, um, like Jeff said, is just such an important concept. And, and if you don't, if the plaintiff decides not to do both, then yeah, that's a, that's a huge mistake and a, a big benefit to the defense. One thing about the uh, closing <clears throat> argument that is, <laughs> Yvonne and I sit there, you know, biting our nails during the closing arguments of both Steve and Jeff, because I've heard them come very close to this, but it's called the golden rule. Right. And so during closing... Which is what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Why is that important? That's why I have no nails during trial, but essentially <clears throat> the law says that you cannot, as a plaintiff's lawyer, you cannot say to the jury, well, imagine yourself in this injured person's shoes you know imagine if it was your child that was killed what what would you how much money would you take for this injury i mean that's what i think the goal yeah, no, is. that's what it is and, and so exactly. but yeah. but i've seen again both steve and jeff come very very close to this and it's and it's well i mean the, the, the problem is that that is a, it's a it's a good argument but, because but, but not on any cases that are currently on appeal right <laughs> right. Yeah. right years and years ago right. Um, but no, seriously, it's a, it's a good argument. Uh, I mean, you want the jury to, to, to think that, um, you want the jury to consider what it's like for your injured client to, to go through everything they do all day, every day. Yeah. The easy way around is just say as a society, what, what right. You know. Yeah. Right. And I think it, there's a lot of things like that, that, it, that you may not realize that a jury may not realize, or maybe they, I mean, juries are pretty savvy, so maybe they do, but there are, there are things like that, arguments that you can't make or evidence that you can't bring up, like we talked about with the motions in limine, that, um, that you don't hear about for a reason, but they're out there. Like in Georgia, you're not gonna hear about somebody's health insurance, but you know, a jury kind of knows it's out there, but they're not ever supposed to hear about it in a case, and you're not supposed to bring it out closing. Stuff like what the lawyers will make, um, or how lawyers are getting paid, things like that. So there's a lot of st stuff like that, like the golden rule that's, that's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of restrictions on what you can say. Like, for example, a lawyer can't get up and say, you heard from Billy Bob, I believe he's he's a better witness than so and so. I mean, right. You, right. there are different ways you can... You can't vouch for him. You can't, I, yeah, you can't, you, the lawyer can't say, my personal opinion is this guy's a liar and the other guy's not. Right. 
I um I, when when Rebecca was talking about the Golden Rule, I I was thinking I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's the uh, John Grisham movie with Matthew McConaughey. It's time to kill. I yeah, was just thinking that. Yeah, same so thing. right at the end, I mean, I'll never forget how he's like, you know, imagine if your daughter yeah. was right. You know, right. Right. Like, entire that's a great argument. Completely illegal. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but he looked good hard. doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Very effective. Very effective. So so uh, okay. After you close, after after the plaintiff closes, the defense closes. The judge then reads the jury charges to uh, the jury, and then the jury gets the case. Right, and that's and always the time of the trial where I'm really wishing I hadn't had any coffee. Right, because right. The, they shut the courtroom doors, and you can't get up, and you have to sit there, and you can't go to the restroom, and the judge just reads the charges to the jury. Yes. Uh, and, and then probably the most nerve-wracking trial uh, part of the trial for me is after the jury's got the case, and then we're just sitting around and yes. waiting. Brutal. Yeah. And we always have these rules that uh, if they come back within an hour to two hours, then that's bad for us. And then if they come back, you know, somewhere within two to eight hours, it's probably, you know, you can't, better for us. When you're, when you're waiting on the jury to come back, you can't, as a lawyer, you can't do anything else. But I remember one case that Steve and I tried where we were in this little witness room. What were we watching? The Hangover? <laughs> we, yeah, we watched The Hangover yeah, so, <laughs> to take our minds off so of we, it. So <laughs> we had The Hangover on a computer and like all so the trial team was all huddled around it watching this, you know, movie, and I remember the bailiff opens the door and just looks at us and just kind of laughs and <laughs> right. shuts the door. Yeah, the a sound that I, I have nightmares about um, is the bailiff oh. knocking on yeah. the door, which yeah. I don't know why, because, you know, it's gen generally a good thing right. for us, but, you know, it's that knock, 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 you know, and then the bailiff comes out and says, jury has a verdict, and it seems like uh, at that point, everything is in slow motion. Yes. And you, the jury you, you takes have to tell forever your, your client, to whatever out. happens, don't react, and you... You know, you're sitting there, and then they read the verdict out. And uh, if it's a good thing, you're, you're you got this internal feeling like, I, you know, we won. I can't wait to yeah. hug my client. If it's a bad thing, you're sitting there going, uh. But um, but I completely agree with Steve. It, it is it's the most difficult part of a trial for a trial lawyer to sit there and wait for a verdict. And well, let's not forget the knock the knock on the door. That's the question, right? right. And not yes. The verdict. The yeah. jury. The jury questions where they'll they'll say they have a question. You know, and the judge will instruct them ahead of time maybe to try to you know sort those questions out with the charges that they've been given and the evidence that they have but if they can't um then they'll send a question out by a note or something with the bailiff and then all the lawyers will have to come back in and the jury will come back out or the judge will read the question and talk to the lawyers about how to handle it and then bring the jury back out and sometimes he'll just like reread a charge or mm -hmm. instruct them to remember the charge and the evidence yeah. and send them back and it's you can't just the, you can't, as a jury, just like write down a question you have and then come come out and get a straight answer most of the time. Yeah. Right? And, and, and then there's the situation where you you can't get a unanimous verdict. So the, the jury comes back and says, we, we're, you know, we're gridlocked. We can't, you know, we can't decide. And so the, the judge then, by law, has to go back and say, no, you got to do your job. Continue to look at the evidence. And, you know, as lawyers, it's on both sides, that can be very scary as well because... Nobody, you know, wants a hung jury, but that's what the signal they're sending when that happens. Yeah, and, and they're instructed, you know, you can't vote and come up with majority rules. You can't, you know, there, there are things you're not supposed to do to resolve that kind of deadlock, you know, you're so... Ugh. Deadlock was the word I was looking for. Not <laughs> right. I think it's a <laughs> Same concept. 
So, and then, and then you get your verdict, uh, and then you, uh, if, if it's uh, a good verdict for the plaintiffs, uh, then you're happy for a bit, and then you go up on appeal, right? I mean, right. it's... Well, either way, either way, you're off to the bar. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Either, to either cry or celebrate. Or, or yeah. eat your first meal. Right, and eat, yeah, exactly. I, I, I sh we should just talk briefly about the, the uh, difference between uh, compensatory damages and punitive damages, because sometimes there can be a second phase of the trial. Jeff, you want to talk quickly about, you, you know, sometimes when you what punitive damages are and the difference there? Yeah, the, the easy way to think of them is compensatory damages compensate the plaintiff for some wrong or injury that's been done to the plaintiff, and punitive damages punish the defendant for something the defendant's done. So uh, in the compensatory, which is typically the first phase, if you get a verdict, the jury compensates the plaintiff for their injuries. Um, and then this happens in punitive damages cases. They think they're going to go home, <laughs> right? And then there's a second phase, which typically is pretty short. But then you say, okay, well, you've, you've compensated the plaintiff for what happened to them, but now you need to look at the the conduct of the defendant and determine what it's going to take to punish and de de deter the defendant from doing that in the future. It's a two-part process. The burden of proof is higher, um, you know. So most cases do not. Most people don't know this, but most cases, in fact, it's very rare that a case involves punitive damages because there are all these procedural hurdles and constitutional hurdles that you have to overcome to get a punitive damages case to the jury. But if it is a punitive damages case, there is a last and final phase where there's punitive damages uh, evidence that in many ways is, or many times is not admissible in the first part of the case. And then the jury goes back and deliberates again and they determine the amount of punitive damages if they if they decide to award it and and for the plaintiff it's uh, one of the most fun parts of trial yeah, and for the defense it's one of the right. worst parts of trial right. yeah because the jury the jury checks a form on the, in phase one that says we would like to consider imposing punitive damages um which means that you know for the defense lawyers they've pretty much lost every way they can lose in, in the biggest way possible and for the plaintiff's lawyers at this point the the danger Steve, is not to overdo it at this phase. Wait, that's, that's only happened one or two times. <laughs> Once, one or two times, but you know, anyway. In that, in that tire case that with Jeff and Rebecca, which was, was the first ever trial I did, I, I could not, first of all, I could not leave the courtroom or the hallway outside the courtroom for a second while the jury was out. I was so nervous. And so um, everybody else had gone to get something to eat and I was the only one there. And the jury knocked on the door and they had a question and um, the judge had, had uh, there was somebody there from the defense too, so even though the, every, everybody else from our team wasn't back yet, he read the question and the question was, do we award punitive, punitive do we decide punitive damages now or later? <laughs> those, are, those are the kinds of questions yeah. in your career you're, you, you're happy to yeah. have. I tried to play it really cool, but I, but I texted uh, everybody else at lunch and they were like... We all ordered margaritas at that point. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I think we've pretty well covered in what's probably going to be this two-part uh, episode yeah. um, uh, of, of a jury trial and, and, and a case. And um, is there anything else that we've left out that anybody else wants to say? I do think it's important to know that um, trial is like, you know, for a jury that wonders or for somebody who doesn't have a trial lawyer in the family and doesn't really understand, it's really, you know, the jury comes in and hears the evidence each day and then they go home and whatever. But like everything else, you know, we're preparing for the next day or the or 
the next two days or the next it's really a stressful boring, hard yeah it's it's basically a time in your life where you're going to go two to three weeks with almost no sleep um yeah. or just minimal sleep i mean i i, I sleep terribly uh during trial and uh even for the days after i remember a case that jeff and i tried that we were like three days after the trial was over I woke up in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., thinking like all the stuff I had to do, and then I, I had to remember, it's oh, over. the trial's over. You have head spins, and you, right. you know, because yeah. as Steve said, you're so jacked up on adrenaline, and uh, it's hard to come down after a trial. Right, and for all that preparation you do ahead of time, depending on the way things are shaking out at trial, you're going to adjust things or adapt to things. And so, you know, you're suddenly up that night writing a brief or reordering something, or... Well, and one other thing we do after trial, I really like to do this, yeah, is, this is um, interview the jurors afterwards. Most of the time, the judge allows you to do that. And, and so I, whether we win or lose, I like to go interview the jurors either in person or at least by phone. And it is the most rewarding, but it's also the most scary <laughs> part of trial yeah. because other than when the jury's out, because... You know, they'll say things that y you learn for new cases, and, and you're like, well, they, that was great. They got this. And, but then they'll ask questions, and you're like, really? You, you didn't get this, or we forgot to tell you this? Um, and, and it's also hilarious because they have, I think, every trial I've interviewed jurors afterwards, they've got nicknames for all the lawyers. Um, and so the first thing I usually ask is, what's your nickname for Jeff? Right. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, we, we always like to hear what they have to say. But like that example Jeff talked about earlier when the guy said, well, I was going to vote for you, but, you know, the judge wouldn't order pizza and I just got hungry. I mean, that, that was just devastating to hear. Um, because well, especially for your client, who right. this is their right. one time right. that they get to, you know, after years of going through this, they get to have it heard. And then to think that it comes down to not getting pizza is really right. disheartening. Or when they tell you that they decided, you know, well, both sides experts were hired by that side and getting paid, so they just decided to just Ignore them all. Right. Them all. Which, yeah. I think that happens a lot. Or yeah. one juror told me that during closing ar arguments, she just felt so bad because I wasn't wearing tights or pantyhose. And that's all she could think about. She was like, it's January and it's freezing outside. It was freezing. And, and, and she was just so worried about the fact that I wasn't wearing any tights. And she found against me and it was a defense well, verdict. Fortunately, I had trial tights on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. But did I was you, like, did really? You, show them off? <laughs> you, you were thinking about that? It was, it was frustrating. But it's amazing the kind of stuff that they pick up on and they tell you after the fact is probably the most instructive or educational part of the trial right but at the end of the day this is what we do for a living and we love doing it so yeah I should say that uh, when Rebecca was referring to um, nicknames that, uh, that um, Jeff and Rebecca tried a case where they were known as Ken and Barbie <laughs> and that's where Jeff after that got to be known around the fir firm as Dad Bod Ken. Dad, Dad <laughs> Ken and Barbie that's right. <laughs> um, that's, that's also the same case where one of the, the jurors said well I know you worked y'all worked hard and, and said to me like I think you were there almost every day. <laughs> right yeah exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Yvonne yeah. had worked two years on yeah. the case nonstop. Yeah. Like, didn't sleep for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> real, real memorable, obviously. All right. Well, uh, I, I just want to thank everybody. Any, First, let me. Any, any questions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank, thanks, to, thanks to our guests, <laughs> our, uh, our Latin professor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah. for having me. It was fun. Yes.
Thank you to Rebecca, uh, Rebecca Franklin Harris, who's with the Franklin Law Firm uh, at franklinlawfirm.com. www.franklinlawllc.com. On the internet. And then, uh, and I want to thank my co-hosts Yvonne Godfrey, and then my partners Jeff Harris and Jed Manton. Um, thank you so much, and uh, I think this has been an enlightening show. Hope so. Thanks. Thank you.